Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Volcanic vents and reefs give us an insight into what our future oceans could be like. Lots of species live around in different conditions. Some thrive in reefs, but when things invade those reefs, such as oil or other pollutants, it can wreak havoc with the life in that ecosystem. Plus, we find out by looking at ocean beds now what the future may have in store for oceans wracked by climate change. One of the challenges that the world will face, based on current predictions for global warming and climate change, is that the oceans will become much more acidic. That is to say that there'll be much more carbon dioxide absorbed in the water. And when that carbon dioxide combines with the water that's sitting there, the H2O, and some carbonate ions, what it actually produces is HCCO3, which basically will, over time, lower the pH of the water. Now, the pH scale is basically a scale from 0 to 14, and it's a unit of measurement that's a relative measurement for how acidic or basic something is. Basic things like alkalis are around the 14 scale, whereas acidic things like, let's say, hydrochloric acid and sulfuric acid, they're down at the 1 to 2 range. The more concentrated the acid, the higher its acidity. And what the problem is, is that most things like to thrive on a roughly neutralish level. And that's where in our soils, for example, if you have a highly basic or a highly acidic soil, it can really detrimentally impact the crops you're trying to grow. So farmers and just even gardeners pay close attention to the pH level of their soil. But not just in the soil is there potential impacts for pH. The ocean faces exactly the same problems. As more and more CO2 gets absorbed by our ocean, just like our plants on land, the plants in the oceans will find it harder and harder to live. As the soil becomes more acidic, it can really cause some problems. Let's take, well, a fetropod or a sea butterfly, like a small little sea snail type creature. The problem with their shells over time when it's exposed to high pH water and high carbonate levels of water is that the shell itself will slowly dissolve over 45 days. And that's just been modeled. So for example, some scientists actually tested this from the National Oceanographic Institute um, to see if they placed one of these small petropod seashells into the some seawater with the same pH and carbonate levels that are projected for the year 2100, then the cell itself dissolved in 45 days. And, you know, this has the same level of impact as well to shellfish, which means things like oysters, crabs, lobsters become much more difficult, unless they're obviously in fresh water, but even then. Also, the increase in CO2 absorbed into the water reduces the amount of dissolved oxygen. And dissolved oxygen is how fish, for example, breathe. They process the water through their gills and take out the oxygen. So as you increase the CO2 levels in the ocean, not only is it more acidic, but it can also reduce dissolved oxygen levels, which have a negative impact on living creatures in the ocean too. So ocean acidification is a huge issue and one that we're paying close attention to. And some recent research out of the University of Adelaide in Australia has, was published in the journal Current Biology. And in this study, the researchers looked to ocean volcanic vents as a pretty good mimic for what the ocean may be like based on current climate change projections. Now, near these underwater volcanic vents, there's actually very, very high concentrations of CO2. 
compared to other adjacent marine environments, which are at current levels. And so what they did was they studied the species and the types of species that exist around these vents and compared them to the types of species in nearby marine environments, not near the vents, with sort of normal levels of CO2 dissolved in the water. The research was led by the project leader, Professor Ivan Nackelkirken, who's a marine ecologist at the university's Environment Institute. And what they tried to observe was the biodiversity levels in the types of fish species. And obviously, all the scientists have been predicting a decrease in biodiversity over time based on the increased ocean acidification. But this gave them an opportunity to study it in practice by basically looking at something that's a, a window into the future. And it was done in shallow water temperature kelp ecosystems that have volcanic CO2 vents, basically as the natural labs, or a mirror into what the future oceans might look like. And over a period of three years, that in the high CO2 marine environments, one or two of the smaller species, which were behaviorally dominant, began to profit, basically survive more than the sort of less common species, which sort of disappeared. So look at the total number of fish, and under certain conditions, these the number of fish were actually increasing. But the local biodiversity, so the varieties of fish, was lost. So some of the fish basically profited off the extra warm water and CO2 in the ocean. But it meant that only one or two species was really flourishing. The rest had just basically disappeared. And lack of biodiversity makes for not a healthy overall ecosystem. Because you remove things from the eco-web and food chain. And not only that, you make that population much more at risk to any shocks or changes. When you have a multitude of species, you're a lot more resilient. So if there's any small other changes or adaptions, then the species can sort of recover and sort itself out to balance. If you only have a small number of species, it's a lot more risky. And what they identified is that small weedy species that live in the kelp, like weedy sea dragons, which would normally be kept under control by large predators, but because of the ocean acidification that was happening there, it meant that these little weedy sea creatures got an expanded region that they could operate in that protected them from these intermediate species. And they basically, they took over the territory because the predators weren't enough to keep them in check and they had both more food and more territory that they could flourish in. And these weedy species are basically the marine equivalent to rats and cockroaches, small pest-like creatures that scavenge and flourish in these sort of inhabited environments now one of the research findings was that you could protect the biodiversity by making sure that these high level predators these things that feed on the weedy species are kept high in stock number basically prevent fishing or other mechanisms of reducing the populations of these intermediary species and because we to keep that population of those weedy species in check and prevent them from going out of control but on the whole, there's going to be a lot of diversity loss in the future. And that's going to be a great risk that we need to carefully manage and monitor. And this research from the University of Adelaide shows how we can use ocean sea vents as a mirror to the future to try and understand what the best strategies and responses may be as we face a changing climate and a changing ocean.
Coral reefs and the fisheries around them are not only beautiful to look at, and here in Australia we pride ourselves with some of the natural wonders, like the Great Barrier Reef, but they're also incredibly important parts of local economies. For example, 400 million people across the world depend on tropical coral reefs for survival. This ecosystem is estimated to provide around 30 billion US dollars in a recent study by the Centre for the Applied Biodiversity Science of 2008 estimated the value of the contributions of all these systems to the world economy. So it's not just something that looks good, but it's something that feeds people, millions of hundreds of millions, but also contributes incredibly importantly to our economy through tourism, through fisheries, and through a number of other avenues. But over time, exploitation of these resources, for example, overfishing, coral harvesting, along with climate change and the warming of these oceans and events like coral bleaching, which we've talked about here before, and poor water quality from runoffs from land-based effluent or heavy industries, can degrade this. And so there's a lot of challenges facing our reefs, and they are at risk from a wide variety of threats. You know, In 2016 alone, 35% of the northern Great Barrier Reef is estimated to have died from a coral bleaching event. And there's about 35% of corals across the world that are under severe threat of disappearing within 40 years. So there's a lot of threats to reefs and their ecosystems, and thus the fish that live on them and the communities that depend upon them both in a fiscal and environmental way. And a recent study conducted by the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies in Queensland, published in the Nature Ecology and Evolution Journal, have been looking at the particular damages from oil pollution. So we know about the threats from temperature change, we know about the threats from runoff, we know about the threats from damage or overfishing. So this study was to look at the impact of hydrocarbons present in marine environments and how they're high in concentrations can actually affect the very, very sensitive ecosystems on the reef and what short-term and long-term damage that these toxic pollutants can actually do. So most of this study is centred around what are known as petrogenic polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs. And PAHs are very commonly found from anything to do with oil industry. Now these could be from direct spills into the ocean but even more from other secondary or tertiary sources. These include fossil fuel exploration, so when they start drilling and digging in the oceans for more fuel sources, waste from transport, or urban and industrial runoff. And so these toxic pollutants are found pretty much worldwide. And this study looked at concentrations of PAH in micrograms per litre, and sampled areas from the Great Barrier Reef, the Red Sea, Asia, and the Caribbean, and, and analysed what the impacts of this increased concentration of hydrocarbons, PAHs, was on the marine life at varying levels in the ecosystem. Now, each year, over 6 million metric tonnes of petroleum products are enter the ocean, either from human sources, from a discharge, from runoff, or from shipping operations. And that's not even factoring in these major oil spills that occur in specific regions from time to time. So the actual concentration of PAHs in our oceans varies from a large amount, from around 0.1 of a gram per microliter to around 600 as a kind of like an average across Middle East Asia and Europe. But in some highly polluted sites, they can get as so far as 9,000 micrograms per liter, which is just a crazy amount of concentration. 
and these are often found in areas with large industrial or shipping operations and near oil exploration sites. So whilst there are many potential damages from hydrocarbons impacting on a reef, the study looked at a really simple process. They looked at what petrogenic pollution could have on coral fish recruitment and their life cycle. And just as a brief overview, the coral reef fish life cycle sort of starts out in a pelagic larval phase, these small larval forms of fish. They find some coral to settle in, then they might live and hide from any predators that might come and eat them inside the coral. As those fish get bigger and bigger, they grow, they reproduce, and then we start the cycle all over again. And through these different phases in the ecosystems across different species and regions, this study looked at what impact changing levels of concentrations of hydrocarbons had on the resiliency of these small fish populations and their life cycle. So they looked at six species of fish and across two evolutionary distinct families, Pomacentridae and Letharindae fish species. So they basically tried to isolate maybe one species was more or less better than adapting than others. And they looked at the levels of these hydrocarbons in the water from these environments. They also then tested these species in a controlled manner to exposure to hydrocarbons in a, in a controlled way over a 24-hour piece period to see if there was any increase or decrease in survivability. And what they found is that one of the major impacts on survivability that they saw was that the hydrocarbons were influencing the fish's behavior, particularly in the larval stage. It was inhibiting their higher order cognitive functions when they were only very, very small. And this had huge flow on ramifications for the overall life cycle. Now, in most of these types of fish, larval reef fish that is, finding a reef to habit, to hatch into, to make your own home is a very, very important step. It normally occurs during darkness, where they can be relatively protected from predators. And basically, choosing a good house is one of the most important measures of survival. If they chose a good house, they would be more likely, substantially more likely to survive than otherwise. So when they exposed these fish species to the highly concentrated seawater with these hydrocarbons in it, basically their logical selection of a nice home that was complex and safe to inhabit disappeared. They just went for the simplest thing that they could possibly find. They didn't do good selection of a house. They basically picked the first thing they saw that wasn't very difficult. And this was likely due to the fact that their complex neurosensory and cognitive decision-making was impaired by the presence of the oil in this water that was impacting them, especially when they were so small. They didn't have much resilience because their size, of course, and their development stages is very early. And thus, many of these fish exposed to the high concentration of, of oil in the water died off very rapidly. And when it came to escaping from predators, the fish also suffered. They weren't able to escape as fast and have good escape routes that they could rely on. And thus, this further re reduced their mortality. And this is quite interesting because most of the chemical science behind this suggests that persistent organic pollution, such as petrogenic pHs, will actually decrease the cardiovascular capabilities of the fish. If you have all this heavy oil in the water, it gives them a cardiovascular injury through their gills, and this causes more and more damage to them, and they struggle to survive. That is certainly will happen. But what they have found in this study is that it's not just the physical systems in the fish that are being damaged, but also their decision-making. Their cognitive functions are being impaired by the high concentrations of petrochemicals. 
So this shows that we can learn a lot by studying our reefs and our ecosystems and that they're very, very complex. It's not just the physical means that might be damaged on creatures or may not just be the obvious first order thing that might impact the survivability of these complex little ecosystems. But an overabundance of petrochemicals, high concentration in the water, along with a number of other factors, can actually cause impairment in the decision-making process of these species through a pathway that we yet haven't identified what's causing this. But it goes to show that the stability of these ecosystems are very, very fragile, and we need to be very, very careful in the future protecting our marine environments. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we heard how the weedy species will inherit the oceans and how oil around reefs can make fish act in very, very strange ways. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.